waiting. Advent is a season of waiting. We wait for Christmas Day. We wait for the historic birth of Jesus to come. We, We wait for his second coming. We wait for the first Sunday of Advent after a snowstorm. But instead of waiting, you know, often people associate Advent with busyness, right? Things often, I, I can't even count on my hands how many people have come up to me asking how busy I am at this time of year. I wonder if it's the same for you, right? We often get caught up in the busyness of the season, and rightly so, right? We, we, we are spending time with family. We're celebrating things. This is, this is typically a busy time, but it, it, it gets in the way of Advent sometimes. Emmanuel means God with us. Right now, to, to rest, to sing, to, to enjoy Christ among us, and we can lose sight of this. And so this, this Advent season, we are going to spend some time paying attention to this. What does God call us into right now? What's the big picture? The author, Richard Foster, uh, which, who writes a book that, that our sermon series throughout Advent and our worship services are being shaped around. Richard Foster um, writes a book about what he calls the streams of living water. These are different dimensions of our faith. Different, he calls them traditions. It's kind of like a prism, right? If the Christian life is like a prism, each different dimension adds a different element, is a little bit unique. So last week, we were uh, supposed to look at Mary. Mary is the mother of Jesus. She's also a very quiet, prayerful woman. She exemplifies for us what Foster calls the contemplative, prayer-filled life, a life paying attention to God in our midst. This week, we're turning to Joseph. Joseph is the picture of holiness, of righteousness, of doing the right thing. And so what we'll see is through Advent, each of the different characters in the Advent story will show us a different tradition in our faith, a different dimension to the Christian life, culminating in Jesus and what he calls us into, what he calls us to rest in and sing about this year. And so this morning, we meet Joseph. And I can imagine for a lot of us, uh, the word holiness or righteousness uh, can often be met with mixed reactions, can't it? You know, it's probably a word, especially in our culture, that it comes with a lot of baggage to it. Because when we hear the word holiness, we, we think of moral perfection or being a perfect person. For this stream, Joseph is the uh, poster boy because in everything he sought to do what is right. You know, we get, we get introduced to this when, when Joseph in this text hears that, that Mary is, is pregnant and is going to have a baby, and it's not by him. He, he knows what he has to do. He knows he has to be faithful to the law, and he has to divorce her. That's what, that's what the law says, and so that's what he's going to do. But at the same time, he doesn't want Mary to be filled with the, the shame and the, the social outcastness that will come from something like this. And so he wants to do it quietly. He, he wants to do the right thing in this very difficult situation that he finds himself in, right? Holiness, righteousness, doing the right thing. And so quietly... 
obediently. He listens to God, right? The Holy Spirit comes to him in a dream, and, and he is told not, not to divorce Mary, but to take her as his wife. And so he does that. He, he follows. He does the right thing. You know, maybe, maybe you look at this, or you're thinking about this, and you think, I look up to Joseph. I want to be like him. I want to do the right thing. Or, or maybe you, you look inside of yourself and you think to yourself, there's no way I could be put in the same ballpark as him. Thinking about the things that I've done, the mistakes that I've made, right? They can add up and, and, and weigh us down. And so um, I think oftentimes when we, uh, when we think of, of, of holiness and righteousness and a holy life that, that we're called to enter into, it can, it can often... Uh, bring up a, a certain way of seeing life that's just not true. And it goes like this. Okay, here's a line that represents our lives. Our lives on earth, that is. Okay, and, and when we get to the end of our lives, we'll either go to heaven. This is the place that we want to go, right? I think most of us would. Or the opposite of that, the, the place where we don't want to go is hell. And so we live our lives on this trajectory, thinking to ourselves, I could, e- I could go either way. What makes the difference? Holiness. Right? Living a holy life is then how it's decided which way I'm going to fall. And the decisions that we make, the things that we say, the things that we do, how we treat other people, is going to make the difference. This is not what the Bible teaches about holiness. Okay, this, is, this, is, this, is, this is not an accurate view of holiness, and yet this is what all, a lot of us, even when we don't think we believe this, actually sort of live our lives this way. And so what I want us to do this morning is to look at holiness under three categories. First, what is it? Let's reclaim what the Bible teaches about holiness. Second, uh, why do we need to be holy? And third, how do we receive it? How do we receive holiness? So first, what is it? Well, holiness is actually a condition. It's the shape of something. Okay, in the Bible, many times, God is talked about as being holy, right? If you think of the book of Revelation, uh, the throne room of God is, is very popular uh, for Christians that, you know, we know that the, 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 those around the throne say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, right? The holiness belongs to God. And when in three times in the original language it repeats itself, that means that it's true. Every time that a word is doubled, it means truer and truer is the statement. So holy, holy, holy is, is very truly holy that God is. It's God's condition. Uh, it's the shape of being set apart. And also in the scriptures, we're told that this is unique. To God. In 1 Samuel, David talks about this. He said, he says, there's no one holy like the Lord. There's no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. And so if holiness is a, is a condition, if it's a, the state of someone or something, then what makes God holy? What makes him set apart? What makes him unique and different than anything else? Well, um, think about it like this. Think about it like eating. Okay, I think most of us here probably like to eat. 
right? Imagine um, your favorite sandwich of all time. Just picture it in your mind, the most delicious sandwich that you've ever eaten, okay? Um, now, imagine taking a bite of that sandwich. Okay, you can, if, you, if it's easier for you to picture, you can pretend that you're holding it in your hand and that you're taking a big, massive bite out of it and you're tasting those flavors, right? What is it that makes your favorite sandwich holy is its character, right? The, the mustard might be spicy. The meat might, might have a good flavor to it. The bread might be a specific type. Right? That, that's what makes the, the, what sets the sandwich apart from the other ones is its specific character, what it brings to the table. And so what does God, what God brings to the table, what makes him holy, what makes him holy, holy, holy is his character, which, which we read about and see through the whole scriptures, right? But in Exodus, God reveals himself to Moses. He says, Yahweh, the Lord. The God of compassion and mercy, I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness, lavishing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is afflicted, even the children in the third and fourth generations. So the way the Bible talks about holiness is always in relation to God's character. God is a God of justice. God is a God of mercy. He's a God of faithfulness and forgiveness, but also judgment. Justice, right, requires judgment. We see this perfect, loving, all-powerful character that sets God apart. Right? But why do we care about this? Why do we care about holiness? Why do we need to be holy? Isn't it just enough that God is holy? Right? Why does it affect us as human beings? Well, imagine you had a friend. Okay, and this, this friend is an incredible musician. And most people would even call that person a prodigy. Right? A prodigy is somebody who is just so gifted that, that, they're, that they're an anomaly. That they're not... <laughs> They're so good that they're too good, almost. Now imagine that you, as a just average or slightly below average musician, is, is supposed to play in, the, in a band with this prodigy. Right? You're supposed to be on stage together in relationship, musical relationship with each other. So there's prodigy and then there's average, normal musical skill it's going to be really hard for you to keep up, isn't it? You're going to feel like you're playing catch-up, or you're going, to, you're going to feel like you're not able to play up to that level. You're going to feel inadequate in, in, this, in the presence, in a, in a musical relationship with that person. You might not even be able to play the same music as they are. Or, you know, play, we, we, in, in, uh, in sports terms, this would be, you're not even in the same league as this person, right? So why do we care about holiness? Why do we need to be holy? Is that God created us to be in relationship with him. And to be in relationship with him means we need to be in the same league as him. The Bible talks about this type of relationship in, in the Garden of Eden, where, where Adam and Eve lived in relationship with God. Right? They walked with him. They were friends with him. How, was, how could this be? Because they were holy. Their characters were expressions of his character. 
Their perfection was an expression of his perfection. The Bible has a specific word for this. It's called in his image and likeness. God created us. God created us to be expressions of his holiness, to act in certain ways. And we see this in the Garden of Eden. This is what happened. Adam and Eve lived in harmony with God. But things didn't stay this way, right? Adam and Eve made a choice. They, they, they ate the fruit that God commanded them not to. They chose to follow their own way instead of God's way. They made a choice that did not reflect his image. The Heidelberg Catechism talks about this uh, in question and answer, I think it's six. It says, God did not create, did God create people so wicked and perverse? Did God create people not able to live in harmony with him? The answer is no. No, God created them good and in his own image. That is true righteousness and holiness. But get this, it goes on. So that they might truly know God their creator that they may truly love him with all their heart and live with him in eternal happiness. That's relational language, isn't it? Right? God created Adam and Eve holy, set apart, so they could live in relationship with him. See, we were made in the image of a relational God, and this is why we, we may try to avoid holiness, or we may fail to live up to it, but we can't shake this feeling that there is a certain way that we have to act. There's a certain way that God has called us to live, and we can try to do things differently, but we can't shake that feeling. And the Bible says that's because God created us to be in a relationship with him. It's a beautiful thing. And so um, the struggle is, how do, we, how do we do this? How do we live holy lives every day? Sometimes we say to ourselves, you know, I don't want to live obeying God. I want to make the rules. And actually, I think that, that everyone should be able to, to decide how they want to live, to make up the rules for themselves, who they want to love, who they don't want to love. Um, I don't think that there should be this one standard that people have to, have to live up to. But Tim Keller gives us a great example for how this doesn't always work out so well. He says this, A woman in my church who was a public school teacher told me of her great frustration with the various character education curriculum that she had given to teach her children. She was asked to teach moral values such as justice, unselfishness with possessions, and telling the truth instead of lying. However, she told me that, that the teacher's material strictly forbid her from bringing in any religious justifications for these moral actions. This seemed at first glance to be okay in how it would, you know, what it would lead to. Yet the practical result, she said, was that she could never really give an answer to, to the, the number one favorite question that students like to ask, which is, why? Why? Okay, she says this. Um, because um, if, 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 uh, if a student asked her the question, why do I have to live a certain way, um, she would get into the forbidden realm, right, of giving religious justification. She might say, uh, if she answered, because some things are just right to do and other things are evil, 
right? If that was an, if, if that was an answer, the, the leading then question would be, well, who says what's, what's right and what's evil? Okay, who's to say those things? And if she answers, well, it's just practical for society because there's no moral absolutes that we're called to live to, then, then she, the follow-up question would be, well, who says it's not practical for society? What's, what is it? What's the why? You see, she could never actually answer the most basic of her students' questions, which is the answer why, or the question why. Going back to the, the sandwich illustration, right? If you can imagine your favorite sandwich, your holy, holy grail sandwich, right? If you, were, if, the, if you were to think that one sandwich is set apart from the other ones, you would have to answer why. You would have to give justification for this. Oh, it's because of the mustard, or it's because of the meat, or it's because of the, the, the bread. Well, if you, didn't, if you weren't able to have one absolute, you would never be able to tell which one was your holy sandwich. Right? It doesn't work like that. We try to shift, in other words, we try to shift the standard of holiness from one character into ourselves. And we then are the de defining character of holiness. The problem is then that when you start acting these things out and stuff goes wrong or someone gets hurt, who takes, who takes the guilt and the shame? You do. You do. You're the standard of holiness. You're the one who takes the fall. We can't live with guilt. We don't want guilt. But if we do the flip side, right? If we, if we look and we say, okay, well, there is a standard, a, a, a religious standard for, for morality, for how we're called to live, and it's God, and I am going to please him and do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to obey God well. I'm going to pull up my socks, and I'm going to, I'm going to pull it off. And while this sounds, that sounds simple, but the question is then, what if we can't? What if you can't? What if you try really, really hard and you fail? What then? Right? What if, what if you break God's commands? Well, then you say, I'll just try harder. I'll just, I'll just double down. I'll work harder. I'll do better next time. I won't make the same mistake again. And so we, and as Christians, we're pretty good at this. And if you can gather from the way I'm talking about this, I do also have experience with this. We can double down, we can restrain ourselves. We can say, no, 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 I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure I put up certain accountability structures, reminders to myself, ways that I can avoid failing God again. And then it happens. Right? And, and what, what, what happens to us is, is we begin to build on this guilt and shame that we're trying to avoid by doing the right things, and we can't bear it. Because we don't, we, we're not created to be able to have guilt and shame. And so we say to ourselves, oh, I'm just going to compare myself to others then. At least I'm not as bad as so-and-so. At least I'm better than so-and-so. This is why Tim Keller puts it like this. Without the gospel, we hate ourselves instead of our sin. If we're going to try to please God, we'll end up hating who we are. We're going to try to please God for our justification. We'll end up pleasing or hating ourselves instead of our sin. 
So we can't earn holiness and we can't walk away from holiness. What can we do? Well, the Bible gives us an escape valve. And that's Jesus Christ. God's only son who comes on the scene and who represents God perfectly. Right? Paul, Paul tell, calls him the image of the invisible God. And he did the right thing even when it hurt and hurt bad. Right? When Jesus began his ministry, he was brought into the desert and he was tempted. Right? But he, he passed. He passed the test that we failed. He obeyed God. But he, this path led him to the cross. And there, instead of, instead of representing his holiness, his, perf- his perfect character, his perfect representation of, of, of God, of the invisible God, he actually represented us. It's, he, it's a, the Bible says, he who knew, became sin, who knew no sin. Or in the words of Isaiah, um, the iniquity of us all was laid upon him. Right? Jesus wore our sin and put it to death on the cross. And in the, I think the most powerful words in, the, in all of Scripture, he says, it is finished. It's done. The standard has been passed. Right? So, so we then, through faith in Christ, receive his holiness. We don't have to earn it on our own. And so we're free to, to, to live trying to please God without the, the fear of, of failing. It's a free gift. It's grace. Grace means, means gift, but it's, it's not a cheap gift. And, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer makes this distinction for us. And he says this, Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's baptism without church discipline. It's communion without confession. It's absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. And what Bonhoeffer's saying is that the gospel doesn't say that there's nothing wrong with us, so we're okay. The gospel says that there is something wrong with us, but Christ has done it for us. Right? And so that's why we, that's why we, need, to, we need Jesus to do it for us. So we can, so we can give, our, give our lives to him. So just like Ken did this morning, baptism means giving our life to Jesus. And in baptism, we have to, we have to die to ourselves. Baptism, in baptism, we say, I know you have bigger plans for me than I know about, and I want you to change me. So I want to I give up trying to do things my own way and let you change me. Richard Foster talks about this process which he calls sanctification, which literally means becoming holy. And he describes it like this. The goal of the Christian life is not to get us into heaven. Remember the diagram at the start of the sermon? That at the end of our lives, we'll either go to heaven or we'll go to hell. The, the, The point of the Christian life is actually to get heaven into us. Foster goes on. He says, God is actually intent on this. 
into making you into a dazzling, beautiful diamond. Think about a diamond, right? It is a process. And it, you would say, if, if you were that piece of coal, that would be a painful process to go through. The pressure, it, the coal has to die for there to be a diamond. We have to give up doing things our own way and let Christ take over and purify us and change us. And that requires confession, daily confession. Holiness requires being honest about who we are. That's why we do it every single Sunday in our church services. And, and we should do it every single day, every single moment of every single day. I live through Christ, not on my own. I repent of doing things my own way. I turn to Christ for forgiveness and for life. But confession in the gospel is always met with assurance and forgiveness because it is finished, right? It's done. This is the other side of baptism, right? And I read earlier, and I'll end with this, baptism is the sign and seal of God's promises to his people. In baptism, God promises by grace alone to forgive our sins, to adopt us into the church, to send the Holy Spirit every second of every single day. This promise is made visible in the water of baptism, for water cleanses us, purifies us, refreshes us, sustains us. It's what we need to live on. Jesus Christ is the best water. He's the living water. So come to him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for uh, the gift of Jesus, of uh, his holy life that he lived on our behalf. Lord, so that we can be free from our guilt and shame and um, seek to be made new, renewed, transformed by you. Uh, Lord, send us your Holy Spirit uh, so that we may be made new, that, that you may purify us and um, change, change us. Uh, Lord, in all this, um, we ask that you do it through Christ, who is our Lord and Savior. Amen.